gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do come uh, knowing that unless your spirit works in our hearts, this will be a dead word to us. Uh, but having called us to trust the Lord Jesus, uh, we pray we would know the continuing work of your spirit. It would give us understanding and conviction of the truth of the gospel. And with that understanding and conviction, we pray it would do its good work in our lives. It would help us trust our Lord Jesus for eternal life and equip us uh, to live as his followers in this world. And in my weakness, we pray that you would help me to speak your truth clearly as I ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it would be hard to get elected if you had no one to man the polling booths with your How to Vote cards. Hard for Putin to even think of invading Ukraine if he was all alone. Hard to influence outcomes with an online campaign if no one signed up or reposted your comments. Leaders need followers. Depend on them in our world for their power and influence to execute their plans and fulfil their promises. And they seek generally to retain their loyalty, reward their work and support for them with jobs and privileges. But Jesus is different. What we see in the Gospel is that he has followers. But he doesn't need them, doesn't depend on them to fulfil his plans. In fact, they have to depend on him entirely. And yet at the same time, the benefits, the blessing of being his followers exceeds anything any mere human could offer his followers. Everyone, says our Lord, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Eternal life. All our lives after a few short years and in death. We've been reminded of that as a society by Shane Warne's funeral and as a church community by Ray Davidson's death. And our lives are lived throughout our lives in this world with the shadow, the consciousness of death and the presence of grief. And this life also knows the marring of sin, pain, tears, not just of grief, but of broken promises, of oppression and violence and injustice. But Jesus promises eternal life, the life of the age to come. Not more of the same life we experience here, but life without grief and death. Life characterised by peace, peace with God, the endless enjoyment of God's creative bounty, secure, whole with transformed deathless bodies. Eternal life, it is a wonderful promise. To whom does Jesus say he will give this life? Who can depend on him for this life? And it is an extraordinary promise when you think about it. There is Jesus standing there talking to his followers in a body like theirs, a body that dies. How can Jesus be sure that he can deliver on this promise? How can we? And perhaps the most important question for you, as you meditate, perhaps even feel your mortality this morning, do you have a hope of eternal life? 
Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Our parents then and now wanted the best for their children. And in a society that believed in God, they recognised that Jesus was plainly someone who was close to God, whose prayers and blessings mattered, someone who could help their children survive and thrive. But the disciples, still thinking like their world, don't want Jesus' time and energy taken up with, well, people who didn't really matter, who wouldn't be able to make any contribution to Jesus' cause. You see, peasant kids don't create a power base and they aren't a useful source of material resources, money for the movement. And the disciples probably thought that it was a little beneath the dignity of their important rabbi to be preoccupied with anxious parents and their desires for their children. But by welcoming these children, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to to reinforce what he's already Taught. The kingdom of heaven, he says, belongs to such as these, belongs to those like little children. Uh, back in chapter 18, Jesus had taught that the requirement for belonging to his community was humility. Truly, verse 3, I tell you, unless you turn and become like, a little, like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this was a demand, as we saw, for his disciples to embrace humility, for children were at the bottom of the social pile without any distinctive marks of greatness. They were powerless, without status, subject to and dependent on their parents. Even the continuation of their lives was uncertain in the context of a high infant mortality rate, so you couldn't build any kinds of hopes on them and you didn't consult them when making your plans. But the Lord Jesus said that to enter his kingdom, belong to his people, that's what you have to become like, a little child. You have to know yourself to be without greatness, to be someone who has nothing to offer and who has to depend entirely on Jesus for being in the kingdom. The kingdom, as Jesus has taught from the outset, is for the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, People who have run out of resources have nothing to offer. So no one who thinks they're great, deserving of position and prominence, who thinks they can bring to the king of the kingdom some service he needs and should recognise and reward, has any place in the kingdom. And Jesus reinforces that lesson now by welcoming these children. And he's also teaching us, his followers, that if the kingdom is for those like little children, then it certainly includes those who are genuinely little children with nothing to offer. Christ's kingdom can include children because being in the kingdom depends on Jesus and his grace, not on his followers' position, power or achievement. And that is great good news for us, isn't it? We can share the gospel with our children and they can enter the kingdom. They can come to belong to Jesus' people while they're young just by trusting him, believing what he promises. They don't have to wait until they demonstrate some kind of worthiness, are able to make some kind of contribution, are deemed mature. 
Now that is, I hope, a great encouragement to those of us who are parents and it's a reminder to us that our instruction of them in the faith is not preparing them for a series of tests they have to pass to be worthy, but sharing with them a saviour who will welcome them in their immaturity and inability, just as in the same way as we're about to see, he welcomes any into his kingdom. For in the gospel story, Jesus reinforces this lesson, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who become like little children before an encounter that shows us how hard it is to become what all who come to Jesus must become, how hard it is to become like a little child. Just then, someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Now, I hope you, you know, as you listen to the gospel being read, I hope you recognise that this is the kind of bloke you would want to attract to your team. He's even, if you've got daughters, he's even the kind of bloke you would want your daughter to marry. He's young, so he's got lots of potential for development. Verse 20, you'll see he's morally upright, keeps all the commandments. You're able to rely on him. He's wealthy, a contributor, not a drain. And he's earnest, isn't he? So earnest, concerned for the important questions. What good must I do to have eternal life? And you can be certain, can't you, that the disciples cleared a path through the crowds for him to get to Jesus. But the outcome of the exchange is disappointing, isn't it, from the recruitment point of view. Another fail, he goes away grieving. So what's happening? Well, his question's a great question, isn't it? What good must I do to have eternal life? But it also expresses his self-reliance. What must I do? He's looking for the good thing he can do, a feat he can perform, something extra that will earn, merit him eternal life. And so he sees Jesus not as a saviour but as a source of guidance an advisor to direct his own achievement. And he is quite self-confident. When directed, verse 17, to keep the commandments as the source of life, as it says in Leviticus 18, he says, I've kept all these. What still do I lack? What do I still lack? Now, Jesus doesn't challenge, notice, his self-confidence by directing him to his own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the heart of right, the heart righteousness that the commands look for, or even pointing out that the first three commands and the tenth, which aren't mentioned here, look for a wholehearted love of God. And Jesus doesn't bluntly say to him, there's nothing you can do. Instead, he shows him he can't do what's needed for eternal life by telling him what he must do. If he would be perfect, says our Lord, that is complete, fully qualified, go, sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Go, sell, give. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus is testing whether this bloke really thinks Jesus teaches the good teaches with the authority of God about what heaven, God, values and rewards. 
But it's not just go, sell, give. Jesus is not saying that spectacular generosity, self-sacrificial benevolence to the poor by itself will give eternal life. That's just the prelude for come, follow me. Jesus is inviting him to become like a little child, to abandon the status and the security of his wealth and to depend entirely on him, on Jesus, to abandon his self-reliance, to rely on Jesus alone, to both keep him in this life and to give him eternal life. And it is an extraordinary demand. Notice that. You see, Jesus thinks he is worth all to follow that following him will deliver what this man was looking for, eternal life. And you should think to yourself, who can say that? And Jesus' command doesn't come out of a narcissistic love of his own power or a desire to make things hard for this privileged man. In Mark it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said. Jesus makes this demand out of love and it's not an arbitrary demand. It is quite unique in being so specific to this rich man's circumstances. You see, all disciples are called to give up all their whole life to follow Jesus. If anyone wants to follow me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. All disciples are called to give up all to follow Jesus. But wealthy Zacchaeus or the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea, they're not asked to give all their wealth away. Oh, Mary, Martha and Lazarus still had a house they could use for hospitality. You see, others are left with their wealth and possessions to use them in obedience to Jesus as stewards of what he's given them. In this unique call to sell and give away all, Jesus was highlighting what was stopping this earnest, moral, rich man from following for eternal life. He's showing him that he was held, held in death by his possessions, by having his identity, his sense of himself in the world tied up in them. He feared loss of wealth and with it loss of self, of status, power, position. And that exposed where his trust was. It was actually in himself. What can I do? In his own capacity and resources and not in Jesus. What Jesus has exposed is how hard it is for this wealthy, earnest and morally serious man to become like a little child. But is he unique in that? Is it hard for him alone to become like a little child? Jesus doesn't think so, does he? Truly, I tell you, it'll be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard, says our Lord, for the rich to enter the kingdom. In fact, it's impossible. That's the point of the illustration You see, the only way the camel can get through the eye of the needle is by a radical rearrangement of its constituent parts in a mincer, at which point it's ceased to be a camel. Camels can't go through the eyes of needles. So why is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, it's because they can't humble themselves to become like little children. Being rich is able to depend on yourself and not to have to depend on others. Being rich, well, the rich have their identity tied up with the privilege, position and power wealth gives. And they don't want to lose themselves, lose their lives for Jesus' sake. But the disciples are shocked by Jesus' statement. Then who can be saved? You see, from their point of view, the rich are the people with resources, with something to offer. And in their society, there's a background belief, still perhaps shared today, that the rich were those blessed by God. And it's true, isn't it? The rich are often the talented, those who've got it together personally, the ones who can look after themselves, who can bring most to the table of life. And if it's, what must I do? Well, they are the ones best equipped to do. Whether it's being charitable or living an ordered life or or being able to devote time to learning some kind of secret knowledge. So if it's impossible for the rich, how can anyone be saved, they ask? And Jesus confirms their suspicion. With man, with humanity, it is impossible. This, being saved, is impossible. Not just for the rich, but for everyone. Now, why is it impossible for all? Well, it's because left to ourselves, we are all like the rich man. We are wedded to the I do, to the determined to rely on our own efforts, to keep trusting ourselves. When because of our sin, there is nothing we can do to bring us peace with God. You see, it's hard for anyone to become like a little child because it has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Humbling yourself to become like a little child and we dream of innocence and simpler times. But let's face it, who wants to become dependent humble? I mean, it's so much better, isn't it, to be in control of our lives. Our identity is invested in being who we want to be. In fact, The whole direction of our lives is moving away from being like a little child. One of the great things about growing up as teenagers know is actually having a say in how your life has lived. Its direction, its timetable, its content being listened to, not always ignored or overruled, getting your own way even if it's from time to time. Who wants, honestly, who wants to go back to being like a little child? In fact, wanting to be in control, independent of God, relying on ourselves, is wired into us from birth. You see, what was Adam's sin about? Not trusting and depending on God for good and evil, for what we should and shouldn't do. You see, our race is committed to the exact opposite of being like a little child. We want to be reckoned like God able to make our own decisions about right and wrong, to be proud masters of our own fate, to shape our lives and our world the way we want them to be. We want to locate authority in ourselves. And despite the mess we make of our own lives and our world, which is just so demonstrable, despite the death we bring, we cannot escape that will to love our own wills, to rely on ourselves. Like the sorrowful rich man, we may sense the goodness of Jesus, sense that eternal life can be found with him, 
but of ourselves, cannot bring ourselves to give up that self-love and self-reliance, that rule of our own lives. We are trapped, ensnared in loving ourselves and other things. But Jesus looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Thankfully, Jesus says that what is impossible for us is possible for God, that entering the kingdom, receiving eternal life, depends on God, not us, on what he does, not what we do. Jesus says God can bring people, even proud people, people who love themselves, people ensnared in their wealth and status, in love with their independence, people like us, into the kingdom. Now, he doesn't spell out here how God will do that. The rest of the gospel will show us that, especially in its climax, where the Lord Jesus brings into life by his death the new covenant, where God not only forgives our sins, as we'll remember this morning, but gives us new hearts, hearts that want to will what God wills for us. But what we do see here, is that entering the kingdom will mean abandoning what must I do, abandoning what I do, and heeding Jesus' call to come, follow me. What we see is that the way God will do what is impossible for us in bringing us to rely on God's Saviour Jesus, humbling ourselves to depend on him completely, to depend completely, as the gospel story makes clear, on the crucified Saviour, the one who dies for our sins. The way God will do that is through that gospel call, come, follow me, through humbling ourselves to become like little children who receive with gratitude the life the King gives. Entering the kingdom, receiving eternal life, will only happen God's way as God's work. And that way is following the Lord Jesus. Jesus actually makes that clear in response to Peter's question. We, he says, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus responds, verses 27 to 28, that because he's no ordinary king, it actually is worth it to follow him. It's through following him that life is found. In fact, that the rewards of following the king will actually be beyond all their imagining. You notice there, Jesus speaks of himself as the son of man, sitting on his throne at the time of the renewal of all things. Jesus is actually saying he is the one spoken of in Daniel 7, the glorious son of man who receives in Daniel's words, At the bottom of verse 14, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, a kingdom, one that will not be destroyed, that he is that son who has an eternal and universal reign when the new heaven and earth is revealed and sin is judged. But Daniel 7 says that that was a reign that would not just be of the son of man but also of his people as well. Daniel 7 concludes by saying the kingdom, dominion, greatness of the kingdoms under all heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey him. See, Jesus is telling his disciples that 
They will at that time form the foundation of the new Israel, the new people of God who receive that kingdom and share in that judging. And this is a glorious future, isn't it? Out of all proportion to anything the disciples may have done or will ever do. It's an extraordinary transformation brought about by God, not by their own efforts, a gift given through the Son. And the Lord Jesus says participation in that glorious time, in that glorious reign, is not just for them but for all who follow. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Everyone, everyone who abandons for the sake of obedience to Jesus the Lord, who abandon for Jesus' sake everything that gives identity and security in this world will inherit eternal life. You see, that's what we get, isn't it, from houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children of fields. Identity. We get from those things belonging, resources, security. We actually get our sense of self from family connection, property and work. And all that, Jesus says, his followers are to leave for him, relying on his promise that those who leave all for him will find those things in Jesus, in following him, trusting him and living his way, find identity, security, belonging in belonging to the family of Jesus. Every believer will find that identity and security in Christ and eternal life. Now, sometimes we have the blessing of belonging to Jesus' families brought home in special ways, and many of us can actually testify to that. But sometimes it's, you know, just being in another country and finding welcome and help amongst Jesus' people, and you know you're with family. But Jesus promises more than a new identity and lasting security in this life. His followers, he says, will inherit eternal life, like the Israelites leaving Egypt inherited the promised land. Jesus will make eternal life ours as we trust and follow him. Following Jesus, says Jesus, is worth it, making us rich beyond the wealth of any person in this life. But Jesus is making extraordinary demands, isn't he, as well as speaking extraordinary promises. So how can Jesus be confident that God will do the impossible through him? Because he's a living man, standing before them in a body like theirs which will die. A living man who knows the truth of what the psalmist says, (laughs) that Well, the great ones of the earth, when their breath leaves them, they return to the ground. And on that day, their plans die, that the plans and promises of human leaders perish with them. How can Jesus be sure that God will save people who cannot save themselves through following him? Well, Jesus was confident because he knew who he was and he knew what he could do. You see, Jesus knew, Matthew 17, he was the beloved son, pleasing to God, sent into the world, as we're told at the beginning of the gospel, to save. 
Oh, and he knew what he had come to do, that he had come to die. The Son of Man's about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. He's been telling his disciples that he has come to die and rise. Oh, and Jesus knew that his death would be purposeful, given as a ransom for many. Jesus spoke as he did because he knew he was God's king who could achieve God's salvation without our help through his death. The king who would graciously give the kingdom to the undeserving, to the poor in spirit, to little children. Jesus was confident. But can we be sure he can deliver on his promise of eternal life? You see, I hope as you've been listening that you're not so numbed to the gospel story that you have ceased to feel the weirdness of this rich man's encounter with Jesus. The weirdness of a bloke, flesh and blood, like the rest of us, with dust on his sandals, probably bad breath, who knows, standing there and saying, I can give you eternal life. Have you felt the weirdness of that? I hope you feel the weirdness and that you are grateful to be on the other side of the cross and resurrection because that's how we know what Jesus said he would do, he did. He died in Jerusalem, betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders, and he rose. That's the witness of his first followers who saw him, touched him, spoke with him, ate with him after he had been killed on the cross. His first followers who testified that he was alive in the body in which he'd been killed, and their testimony is reliable. Jesus lives. And that resurrection is God's testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. The son, the glorious son of man who receives an eternal kingdom, not just the leader of a human movement, but God the son sent from God to save God's people. The living king who can keep his promise. Now that death and resurrection is an event a happening in time in the history of the world. It is not just words and it can't be willed away. The crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is not an idea that we're just willing ourselves to believe. It is testimony, tested testimony we receive. And receiving that testimony, we can be sure that living now with a life death has no power over. The Lord Jesus can give eternal life. Reigning in an eternal kingdom, he can give a place in that kingdom to all whom he wills, to all who will become like little children and depend on him and show that dependence on him by leaving all to follow him. Little children who repent of their self-reliance, their determination to stay in charge of their own lives and trust him by doing all that he teaches. Jesus is a different king. He doesn't need us. Our following doesn't make him king, increase his power. He is the king 
who only has followers who can humble themselves to become like little children, who will depend on him. But he gives to his followers what no one else can give, eternal life. And so that really is the big question. Have you received eternal life from the Lord Jesus? Have you received it as his gift so that you are confident that you will rise with Christ? If that's not the case, well, no, relying on yourself won't work. That life is impossible for you to obtain. For the death of Adam is at work in you and you cannot give yourself eternal life. But where what must I do will only end in disappointment. Lord, save me, will always be heard. For that's God's promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't let your pride blind you to your reality. Don't let your love of being in control of your own life rob you of eternal life. Come, says Jesus, follow me. Trust the living Lord. He can give you life. Ask him for forgiveness and to be made one of his people for grace to follow. For Jesus does call us, call us today in the gospel. Come, follow me. But if you're sitting here and saying, yes, I've trusted the Lord Jesus, I know now his sure promise of eternal life, well, live confident in your Saviour, never turning back to rely on yourself your wealth, your position, whatever it is God has blessed you with. Live as a little child. Don't get sucked into the self-reliance and the pride it brings. Don't get sucked in with looking to your own achievements and trusting in them, even achievements in serving God's people. Live that life of humility that trusts and can serve cheerfully because you know that you can never lose what Jesus gives. And he's humbled himself to serve you and you love him and want to be like him. Live that life of humility and live that life of gratitude for receiving from him what you could never earn for yourself, eternal life, the life that can give thanks always and does not grumble at the cost of following Jesus. And live that life of hope that can keep on leaving what is passing away to receive what will never pass away. Hope in the God for whom nothing is impossible and who has done the impossible for you, believer, given you eternal life through doing the unthinkable, giving his son to die for your sins. Live that life of humility gratitude and hope that tells the world you follow the living Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, deep in our hearts each one of us knows that the day will come when we will die and leave all things, all our loves, all our possessions, all our plans. We thank you 
that the Lord Jesus here promises to all who will follow him eternal life. Life without grief or pain. Life that doesn't know the scarring or the shadow of death. A life where we will love, love you and love others wholly. We thank you for this promise. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the one who obtains this life for us through his death and rising and his call to us in his gracious gospel. We pray we would heed him. Help us to turn away from pride and self-reliance and trust in ourselves, to humble ourselves like little children and to depend on our Lord for life in this life and the next. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.